great future. We're talking real money. If we were like a lot of folks in the financial media, we'd claim that we were really brilliant after yesterday telling you that cryptocurrency was in trouble. Because today, Friday, when I'm recording this, well, (laughs) cryptocurrency uh, isn't behaving particularly well because China just decided to make cryptocurrency illegal. And I, I have to say, good for them. Because finally, somebody's getting a little bit of sense somewhere in the world. Surprising it has to be China. But anyway, we're not going into a cryptocurrency episode again today, though. No, no. Instead, we're going to talk a little bit about the stock market, just a little, and then I'm going to take your questions. The reason I'm going to talk about the stock market. Oh, and by the way, hi, welcome to Talking Real Money. I'm Don McDonald. Glad you could be here. Uh, The reason I'm going to talk about the stock market today is there was a great article in the Washington Post by Michelle Singletary about our desire to try and buy stocks when they're down. It's called buying the dips. And the last opportunity you really had to buy, well, there was a little one last week, early this week, but the last big opportunity you had to buy the dips was back in 2020, right after the pandemic was obviously going to be a problem. And a lot of people did, some, well, some people did, But here is the problem, and she raised this, and we've talked about it on the podcast for years. There is a problem with buying the dips. It makes sense. You know, buy more when it's down or when the market has been down, after it has been down. But therein lies part of the problem. You have to be willing to buy in when most others are feeling like getting out. You've got to be optimistic when the majority are pessimistic. And the other problem is, again, this is with our psychology, is how do you know how big a dip is big enough? Is it a 1% dip? Well, she cited some figures in the article that 1% dips, they're pretty darn normal. They happen a lot. Um, They also mentioned, well, maybe it's a 50% dip. Well, 50% dips are really abnormal. So what's the right amount? The problem is if it's a 5% dip or a 10% dip, those happen occasionally. But by the time you get to a 5% or particularly a 10% decline in the U.S. or the global stock markets, you are dealing with a situation that feels bad. I mean, something has really gone wrong. And the problem is, when we feel like something has gone wrong, we project that on into the future and assume it is going to continue to be bad, to be wrong. And so we wait. We want to wait until, well, until it just feels a little bit better. But the problem is, in a downturn, there are always a few updates along the way. Even when it's plunging, there are a few updates. You're going to get in on one of those? What if it goes down further? That's the game we play with ourselves, which is why if you if you invest like you earn money, you're going to buy low sometimes, you're going to buy high sometimes. And how do you earn money? On a regular basis. You get a paycheck every month or every couple of weeks. So dollar cost average when you have the money. When you have the money. If you have a bunch of money sitting around, remember, it's doing nothing for you. At least if you have it in the market, you have a better 
than 50-50 chance of making more money than it just sitting in cash. So buying the dip is hard to do, and you're probably not going to do it well. Now, if you have questions for us, we're here all the time answering questions on this podcast and on our radio show that airs live on Saturday afternoons, noon to 2 Pacific time, 3 to 5 Eastern. The number is the same for all of those. That's 855-935-TALK. Or you can send questions into talkingrealmoney.com two ways. You can either type them or you can do like this. You can just record it in your own voice. Hello, my name is Devin, and I was listening to your Annuities and Fiduciaries podcast that aired a week or so ago. And you mentioned that um, uh, investing with insurance companies was where most of these uh, annuities uh, came from. And I was kind of wondering why insurance companies are even in uh, the financial products uh, business anyways. Why would you want to invest with an insurance company? That was all I wanted to know. Thank you. Oh, yours is a great question. I really like that question. Why would anyone want to invest with an insurance company? That is such a good question. And the correct answer is, if they if they had all the information they need to make an informed decision, nobody in their right mind would do it. They just wouldn't. Now, why is the insurance industry in the investment business? Well, the answer to that one is really easy. Why do people do most things that they do? Money. There's a lot of money in selling insurance-based investment vehicles. A lot. Think about this for a minute. There are some indexed annuities and indexed universal life programs out there that pay the, the 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 agency and the salesperson a total commission of up to 10% of what you invest. That is huge incentive. You give them a million dollars, they get $100,000. And the lovely thing for them is that unlike the securities industry in which full disclosure is required and yet even then, is ignored often in the insurance industry, full disclosure is not required. There's very little requirement. That's why the insurance industry fought tooth and nail to get indexed insurance products and indexed annuities regulated only as insurance and not as securities. The Securities and Exchange Commission wanted to regulate them as securities. Congress stopped that. No, you would never want to actually invest in an insurance product, period. Now, the tricky thing is, is that a lot of these insurance agents now are calling themselves financial advisors when, in fact, all they're selling is insurance products, insurance-based products. Um, the only time you might need an insurance-based investing product is for an estate planning purpose, period, period. Okay, wait a minute. Maybe not here. I'm going to make one more exception. If you need to know, not even know, I shouldn't use the word know because you don't know, uh, if you want some degree of certainty of income where you get an immediate annuity, but even then we're not big fans of those either. So generally speaking, just stay away from anybody who works for an insurance agency and sells anything other than term life 
or property and casualty insurance. Pretty much, period. Again, you can leave your questions at TalkingRealMoney.com or call them into 855-935-TALK, 855-935-8255. Got another question for you right now. Hi, Don and Tom. This is Brady in Texas. My question to you is regarding the potential changes to tax law being proposed that would effectively eliminate the backdoor Roth IRA conversion. Um, It seems to me like if that comes to fruition that the best course of action would be to make contributions to a regular brokerage account rather than an IRA, given that the um, standard brokerage account would be taxed at the capital gains rate versus the non-deductible IRA contributions would be taxed at um, as normal income. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and any suggestions uh, for those that are in that limbo of uh, what to do regarding IRA contributions. Thanks a lot. You, sir, are absolutely positively correct. Yes. And we say this a lot when you are faced with the situation where you don't have any tax advantage choice. Well, let's go back to insurance for a minute, except maybe a variable annuity. Um, because bear in mind, a variable annuity is tax deferred, but when you take the money out, you're going to pay taxes at your income bracket, which has historically been higher than the capital gains rate. Doesn't mean that will be the case in the future. We don't know. Just as we don't know if the backdoor IRA will go away, we don't know what the future holds. Tax law is always changing. You you live with what we have right now. You deal with what we have now. But if the backdoor Roth is eliminated, then those who would be funding a backdoor Roth would probably be better off buying growth-oriented ETFs through a brokerage account because ETFs, well, here's the other thing. ETFs don't distribute capital gains along the way. They distribute capital. They don't distribute. They distribute dividends, but they don't distribute capital gains. Dividends are always going to be taxed as income. But if you're in a growth vehicle, the bulk of the money you're likely to make is going to be through capital gains. Therefore, it sits there tax deferred until you take it out. And when you take it out, it'll be taxed at whatever the current capital gains rate is based on laws and your tax bracket. So thanks for the good question. And you're right. 855-935-TALK. Call us or send in your question at TalkingRealMoney.com. Good afternoon. I had a question about capital gains. In an effort to establish a portfolio uh, more consistent with your Paul's uh, methodology instead of the hodgepodgery that uh, currently exists, um, capital gains, typically long-term capital gains, would be kind of due to end the fourth quarter um, for these funds. Would it be better to wait till after you receive those long-term capital gains and then make the transition into uh, a better aligned portfolio? Thanks. I don't think it's going to make a bit of difference. I would do it when I was ready to do it. Because bear in mind, the capital gains have accrued to the account. They've been accruing as they've been occurring along the way. So they've accrued to the fund. When you cash out, you're going to have a capital gains event. So it's going to be six one way, half a dozen the other. They're they're sitting there, all the ones that have accrued to date. So it really doesn't matter. You're still going to pay taxes on basically the same amount of money. So if you're going to change your portfolio around... Just get started. Start doing it. And uh, 
it may be that you end up having to do it over a couple of years anyway just to avoid kicking yourself into a higher tax bracket. So before you move stuff, do a little bit of pre-tax planning. But when you do it, when you should do it is when you're ready to do it. Thank you for the call or the question. I guess you didn't call it in. You spoke it in on the computer, which is kind of cool. We're going to do one more before we call this a podcast for this Friday. And let's go. Let's go here. Good morning, Tom and Don. Hey, I'm hoping you can give me your perspective on a whole life policy. It's a 90 life. If that makes a difference to you that I purchased in 2005. I don't need this life insurance and now, and I want to be smart with using the accumulated cash value. I'm single, 59, retiring end of the year, and I want to use the cash value to support future retirement expenses. My question is, since I don't have immediate need for the cash, uh, should I continue to pay the premiums or maybe I surrender this policy and drop the cash value into a brokerage account? Uh, for the details, right now it has a cash value of seventy-four thousand, cost basis of sixty-five thousand, and an annual premium of forty-three hundred a year. Um, as of June twenty twenty-one, the uh, pre based on the reporting on the illustration, the previous year cash value increased by seven thousand dollars. And historically, the year before that, it increased by 6600 So I'm seeing the cash value grow and looking past my sunk costs of the previous years. I'm trying to figure out, do I surrender the policy uh, now? Or is the return on investment worth keeping return on the investment of the cash value increasing each year? I don't know how to look at that growth, comparing my premiums to that cash value growth. Again, I don't need this uh, insurance. I just want to make use of a cash value in this policy that I purchased a long time ago. Thank you for any thoughts you can share and your wonderful podcast. This question gets the um, standard answer. It depends. (laughs) It depends a lot. It depends on what you would do with it once you took it out. Because right now, your insurance company is roughly paying you about three and a half percent on the cash in your account because remember you're paying a premium which is raising the cash value by the amount of the premium and then you're making a little bit of money so you're making about three and a half percent if you were going to invest that in a way that would probably be a little more aggressive possibly more lucrative then i would get out and invest it somewhere else Uh, bear in mind while this is, I'm sure, a fine, fine policy, um, and you mentioned the sunk cost, this costs you a lot of money, you don't need the death benefit, and the return, while it sounds decent, you're not, you can't count on that. Insurance companies are having a very, very difficult time keeping up with these high returns on these cash value policies. And uh, there's no certainty that that kind of deal will continue because it's hard for them to make more than that on their money without taking outrageous risks. So the answer is really, it depends. Is there a huge benefit to staying in it? No. Uh, Could you make more money elsewhere? Yes, by taking risk. Is an insurance policy 100% risk-free? No. Ask a bunch of people in North Carolina who uh, took out 
annuity policies and found out they couldn't withdraw the money. So um, there, there are risks everywhere, everywhere. If I was wanting to take control, though, and start managing a more diversified portfolio where I might earn 5 or 6% a year, uh, yeah, I would probably just get rid of it. You don't need the life insurance, and it's not likely it's ever going to pay any more than that, uh, probably less. So, or the premiums go up or something. I don't know exactly the structure of the policy, but thank you for your question. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your kind comments. Please, if you all get a chance, tell a friend or two or a hundred, if you run into a hundred at a big group, please wear a mask. Um, and uh, tell them to listen to, to Talking Real Money on their favorite podcast service, or go over and check out our video casts or vlogs, as they call call them on YouTube. And uh, if if you have a bigger question, you want somebody to sit down and kind of help you plan a portfolio that's not hodgepodgery, just go to vestry.com online or call 800-386-3004 to set up a free appointment with an advisor. We'll give you up to about an hour. If you want to be a client, we're going to charge you, but you will not get a high-pressure sales pitch, and you will get honest help. So just go to Vestry.com, B-E-S-T-O-R-Y.com, and thanks for being there. I'm Don McDonald, hanging out and talking real money. Talking real money. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for educational and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately, consistently predict the future. So, past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Vestry, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?